0: We had come into the year thinking that we were gonna we were gonna film these lines. We were gonna ski these classic Jackson lines and we were gonna we were gonna ski them better than they had been done before.
1: And I was just pushing snow, just trying to swim, trying to get my feet in front of me instead of my head. Made contact with the tree going very fast. And at that moment I knew I was in a lot of trouble.
0: To the twenty year old males in Jackson Hall, you don't realize you are intoxicated. Your inhibitions have been lowered by your desires.
2: I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation, You can support this project and the Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. Visit www.tetoncountysar.org slash donate to learn more. If you like listening to The Fine Line, share us with a friend. When you move to Jackson Hole in your 20s, you can suddenly find yourself thrust into an extreme playground where the stakes are literally life and death. Accomplished ski racers Connor Nolan and Jim Ryan had the skills to tackle some of Jackson's burliest lines. Their desire to ski those big lines blinded them to the level of risks they were taking until the day they attempted Gothic Coular. When they had to call for help, one of their rescuers, Cody Lockhart, knew just how they felt.
1: My name is Connor Nolan. Most people in town call me Chip. From New Hampshire in Meredith, and I went to UNH. I ski raced growing up my entire life. Moved here when I was 20 years
0: old, four seasons ago. My name's Jim Ryan. Uh, I grew up in Rutland, Vermont. I am also a ski racer. I ski raced my whole life. I'd say it brings me the most consistent joy of anything in my life.
1: We were living together at the time on Aspen Drive, and we had been avid ski partners skiing all the time. The year had been snowing nonstop since December 4th. I'd had a lot of success in the mountains and hadn't really seen anything too scary. We had kind of set our sights on Gothic Couar in No Name Canyon. And it's something that I had been out to twice before that season. And we had looked in there and kind of come up from underneath it and kind of seen how big it was. And it's essentially a 15 to 20 foot mandatory cliff into a tight couar and it's something that I'd wanted to ski since I got to Jackson Hole. Working in Hoback Sports, um, I had a lot of people who have skied a lot of very burly lines and had seen a lot in the backcountry. They had given me a lot of information about the area, how to get there, how to get out of there. I had had some really good people to show me around who had been here for multiple years, close to a decade, show me how to make good decisions and show me where to go, how to kind of read the snowpack and the train that i was in
0: chip and i and our uh, our other friend chris had this this idea that we were going to you know make make a film for the year we are good skiers and and we wanted to show <laughs> we wanted to show everyone we were good skiers and we had come into the year thinking that we were going to we were going to film these lines we were going to ski these classic jackson lines and we were going to we were going to ski them better than they had been done before and, and Gothic was absolutely on that list. I mean, it is so aesthetic and Chip is so strong. We, we knew that we, given the right conditions, we could make this thing look incredible. So we thought the snow was gonna be good in there. Chip said he wanted to do it. The night before, you know, Chip's like, I feel good, it's on. I was excited um, about him doing it maybe four weeks before I had blown out my back, but I was, I was going along as a, a videographer. It was really the first line on our, our list that we had made where it was like, all right, we're gonna do this, we're gonna get it, and, and for me it felt like, finally, we're getting started, we're doing this thing, we're on our way to creating this thing, which is the first step in, in this, this whole process of proving ourselves here in Jackson. Um, so yeah, I, I, was, I was excited.
1: You know, for being here for four years, I definitely had been doing a lot of research um, and talking to a lot of people in town, and I had skied central Kuar many times, and it's part of the so-called trifecta where <laughs> you ski central Kuar, breakneck, face, and then you hike up and ski gothic. So it's part of this very mystical, legendary trifecta line that, you know, we just got very carried away in attempting to ski things that we shouldn't have been skiing. Mm -hmm. We definitely understood that the snowpack had seen a lot of wind the night before. It had been snowing constantly for at least a week, depositing a ton of snow onto northeast aspects. But since Gothic was on more southeast-facing, we figured that it would be a safe spot to go skiing, and we were completely overcast by the excitement of skiing that line that we didn't really plan to have the traverse out of there. We definitely thought a lot about and talked a lot about the way there mm. and how to get up to the top of it, but we didn't ever talk about how we were
0: going to come out. Yeah, we we had a meeting the night before actually about about skiing this line and we discussed all the, the danger that we perceived and it was like the trip out there that we were so worried about, like kind of like excellent communication on the way out, all these you know, northeast aspects are loaded, guys. Like, let's let's really be careful here. And and getting out there, like that's when we thought the danger was. And so we, we like took our time. We we knew it was dangerous. So we were moving in a in a really kind of good way. And we were so proud of ourselves, you know. Like by the time we got to the top of Gothic, we were like, you know, we are awesome. <laughs> like we made it here, sweet. Now it's game on. Let's do our thing. Whip out the cameras. Chipper's gonna do it. Like we just conquered the danger uh, uh, of this project you know now it's just skiing you know being from the east and ski racers we're like all right skiing's the thing we can control we we know we're limited in the in this like avalanche thing you know this this new thing to us but but we've gotten to the point where it's we're athletes and we know how to do this part and so we're standing on top of the line and we are and we are like we've done it we've we've gotten over the the unknown part and now it's time to now it's time to perform. It's a horseshoe-shaped kuar, and we are spaced out on different parts for different angles. I'm actually, when Chip drops into this thing, I am kind of directly above him filming down in. Um, we have somebody on the right side filming up, and then a, a drone in the air also, um, which is right above Chip, um, filming down on him.
1: At that moment, I had been preparing myself mentally to conquer this feat. I... Counted down and I dropped in and I did not stick the landing, absolutely exploded, mm. broke my ski in half, tumbled all the way to the bottom of the couloir. I was lucky enough to be completely unharmed and hiked back up the couloir, gathered my equipment and then skied down the rest of the couloir and waited for them to come around
0: so we could get out of there. Which is totally worth mentioning that he- here we are and and now two things have happened. We've, we've made it out there over the the perceived avalanche danger. Chip has now skied this line, not perfectly, but he's at the bottom of the of the other danger we've perceived, which is it is skiing this kind of scary couloir. He has he has tumbled down in between these walls, which <laughs> Chip Chip is, you know, tomahawking with it within feet, actually bouncing off these walls. And and now we've all collected at the bottom of this couloir and everybody's okay. You know? Like we, we didn't do this thing. We didn't film this line the way we wanted to, but but Chip is okay, we're all okay, and and just because everybody is safe in this moment, the stoke is high. Like, not everything is perfect, but we are amped, we are pumped, the sun is shining, and, and we feel nice. We've gotten so lucky, we've gotten so lucky, and and we're pumped, you know? We're pumped, we, we did it, you know? We're okay, we're okay, it's not perfect, but we're all okay. I was...
1: Pretty rattled from the line, but I also, by the time I collected my equipment and skied back down, I had a now terrible sense of indestructibility. I felt like I could do anything, Mm -hmm. and I felt like I would never be hurt because I had seen such a severe crash, and everything was fine. I was completely okay. Nothing was even sore. I was
0: good to go, get out of there, and keep going on with my life.
2: Yeah,
0: and and this is... I mean, in the day, a series of incidents when we got essentially got away with it, but it's part of a longer string of maybe a year and a half of us three getting away with it. We are continually pushing the limits as a, as a household and truly just lucking out time after time, time after time. We are, we were making
1: lots of bad decisions for a long time and we had gotten away with everything. Yeah, And we didn't think anything bad could happen to us at that time. So we all met up at the bottom and everyone was together and we were definitely not taking enough time. We should have taken a lot more time to talk about the situation. We should have looked at the snow a lot more, but I had been out there the most. I'd probably skied in No Name Canyon six to seven times. And being that far out, I felt like I was the one who needed to lead us out of there. So I continued to ski out with everyone following me. And my goal, we had talked about our best way out, and it had been the way I'd gone the multiple times before, is just traversing all the way back to the village. And you can do it with minimal sidestepping if you do it properly. Now looking back on it, with everything that went on that day, we should have skied to the bottom of the drainage and called for a ride. We're ready to just get out of there, get on with our day. So essentially my goal for the group was to gain as much elevation as possible along the ridge so we could stay high. I was hoping to be above the open snow fields in that lower drainage in Pinedale area because those are definitely something that I knew we needed to watch for, just being so open with not many anchors. So I continued along the ridge to gain underneath some rocks. Um, I just wanted to gain as much as I could. Jim was right behind me. Mm-hmm. He was the closest to me. And I had stopped to regroup slightly and I stopped and I turned around and I looked at Jim and I said, just keep an eye on me right here. This looks like a little bit of a gully feature that we needed to look for. But that is during our, during our time skiing together, that is always being said, you know, hey, Totally. keep an eye on me here. This is something that we need to look for. Um, and then I turned my skis and we were underneath a little bit of a cliff band in Pretty heavily treed area, but definitely smaller trees. And I turned my skis, and as I turned my skis, the entire face broke in this small gully from above me, about, let's say, 10, 15 feet. I'm not exactly sure how far above it was. At that moment, I knew I was in an avalanche and I pulled my airbag. And at that moment, I was certain I was going to die because it was a uh, Pretty deep avalanche. I had absolutely no control. And the last words Jim said to me were ski, ski, ski. I went under the snow for what seemed to be a minute, but it was only probably a split second. And it felt like somebody had grabbed my neck, like you would grab a dog, and pulled me to the surface. And that was my airbag. I made eye contact with what I was going into and I was sliding downhill very fast into a large group of trees so I attempted to I knew that I needed to get my feet in front of me as soon as possible that was the what was going on in my mind and I was just pushing snow just trying to swim trying to get my feet in front of me instead of my head as I was swimming I made contact with a tree going very fast to my right side and at that moment, I knew I was in a lot of trouble, and I
0: thought I was going to die for sure.
1: <laughs> oh shit!
0: Uh, I see. You know, Chip. Chip does. He turns to me he says, "Watch me here." He goes, and um, so, something. You know, like he, like he said. He he turns his skis. He he is fifteen feet away from me when this thing rips above him. It's, it's the whole lane he's in, right? He is caught. It's worth noting, like Chip said, I don't yell avalanche. You know, I don't yell slide. I yell ski, which is like so... It, it speaks to the mindset we're in of here is this thing we are good at. Here is what's going to save you, ski. You know, I, at this point in the season, have already dropped into cool bars that, that I have, you know, I mean, what was it, like a... Two weeks before, a week before, Chip, Chip what, followed me into a core that I had jumped into. It slid and I skied out of, you know? Like, I am certain that my athletic ability, that his athletic ability makes us invincible. I yell, ski, buddy. You know, like, ski, you got this. You, This is how you save yourself. But there's no chance. I mean, this thing catches him instantly. He doesn't even get his skis pointed downhill before this thing sweeps him off his feet and pulls him under. And, and I see him get pulled under. I see him pull his airbag and only now am I yelling avalanche. Of course, he doesn't hear it. Every it's the six, it's the five people behind me that are hearing this, who cannot see him. The the kind of smoke cloud settles and I I go out onto the slide path and and I can't see him. I just see this huge debris pile at the bottom. You know, nobody else has seen what's happened. I, I say, I need one more. Another skier that's with us, Julian, comes out. Uh, we go, you know, one third in, he's two thirds in on this slide path. And we're about to go down to, you know, this like spot where I saw Chip get pulled under. And then where I saw his airbag come back out when Julian says, I see something. And, and it's the the airbag and it is poking up. I ski down to it. It's Chip and he is conscious. And I, and I just go, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive. Because I, it, in the, two and a half minutes since since I saw him get pulled under, I have almost been like, this is death, you know, like we I have thought so much about this idea of dying in an avalanche that it comes so easily into my mind of death. You know, you slide, you get caught, you die. And so when I get to him and he is alive, all I keep saying is you're alive. Chip, you're alive. Chip, you're alive. I start digging him out, but of course it is rock solid. He is pinned against this tree and it is hard. And so uh, I yell up, say, I need help, I need two. Julian and Chris come down to me and we dig Chip out, but it has become apparent in just the digging process that he is very hurt and has hit his head. He doesn't know where he is. He is on a, a short loop here and in pain. So we clear all the snow around him He's pinned on his right side and we try and get him seated and and it quickly becomes apparent that he is not skiing out of there. We have this embarrassingly long, you know, 15 minute conversation of do we call search and rescue? If I'm being honest, the things we're talking about, we're like, we're talking about money. Um, We're talking about. I mean, I don't know if we even discussed this part, but search and rescue is this major in the in the mind of a twenty four year old, admitting defeat, uh, I think it's like all of a sudden this is beyond us, and we need help. You know, he, he is slid. He is in insane pain, and it's not immediate. It's not immediately we need help. It is not until he cannot stand that we are we are like we need help. We need help. I, I have texted people to meet us at the road at the bottom of Jensen Canyon before I have called search and rescue at this point. You know, we're going to need a, we're going to need a driver, not we're going to need a helicopter. And I mean, 15 minutes in a, in a scenario like this is not a short amount of time. We've gone through several two minute loops of chipping. Where am I? What's happened? What's going on? I'm in pain. A- and we think, you know, we know it's the ribs. We think it's a femur. We're worried about his brain. You know, none of us have ever seen a brain injury that is just like that. And so we do, we call search and rescue. The admission has come, you know, of course, before calling like it, like we have admitted it to ourselves and then all of a sudden it's, it is so apparent. Chip is coughing blood. One thing I can absolutely remember is being extremely
1: hypothermic within mm-hmm. a very short amount of time, shaking uncontrollably for hours, close to two hours of that just thinking that I'm not going to make it in Mm -hmm. time for the helicopter to get here and just, you know, I had a punctured lung and 11 broken ribs and I couldn't barely speak at this time. Like Jim said, I was on a total shock loop and, Mm -hmm. you know, had to hit my head quite hard. And, um, just looking back on it now it's having cell phone service was probably the main factor. I'm still here.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, three iPhones saved the day here. I mean, there's, it's like, there's coordinates. We're on the phone with search and rescue. I, there's this point where search and rescue is on the phone with me. They're like, all right, the helicopter's on its way to spot you. The woman is like, you know, like I'm going to go now. And I'm like, yeah. And I like pause and she's like, or I could stay on the line, (laughs) you know? And I just, realize that we need help so bad, I don't even want to hang up the phone. There's now four of us down by this tree with Chip. And two above on the ridge where I was standing when Chip got slid, just watching us because above us is another couple hundred, who knows how long this shoot is. And it's just hanging above us. And we're looking up and we're just seeing the crown. And then every now and then some snow will come down on us and we're asking them to stay up there because we're now afraid that all of us are gonna get taken out once again. We, we tell this to search and rescue and Chip must have been aware because we're yelling up to the guys and we're saying, hey, watch us. If this thing goes again, we're gonna need you to find us. And so all this is happening. The helicopter comes out and it, it sees us and then it leaves. <laughs> and I'm on the phone and I'm like, why is the helicopter coming and going? You know, uh, Chip, is, Chip is coughing blood. And she's like, it's spotted you. It's getting a short haul, it's coming right back. And they do, they come right back. But still, from the time of the slide to the time of the short haul, it's the two and a half hours. I stay on the phone with her till I see the helicopter coming with search and rescue guys on the line, you know, coming in. Only
3: then do I hang up. I just left my office and I was going to the gym. And luckily I was driving right by the search and rescue building. And When my phone rang off, it rang, which is how um, our search and rescue team is paged out, my name is Cody Lockhart. I'm a member of Teton County Search and Rescue, and I've been on the team for um, about eight years. I'm from Jackson, Wyoming. I also grew up ski racing a lot, and, and it's skiing in general has been one of the uh, most consistent things that I've done in my my life. As we got coordinates for these guys and we plotted it on our map, we're like, oh, this is this is up high, and and this is a, in a tricky spot. Um, you know, we're gonna need we're gonna need the helicopter, and and likely we're gonna need a, a short haul and. And short haul is basically just when we, we hang rescuers uh, 150 feet on a rope below the helicopter so we can swing them into a mountainside. Um, because the closest place we could have landed the helicopter would have been several miles from where these guys actually were, where there was a, a flat flat spot. We knew that, that Connor had had serious injuries, and luckily um, AJ Wheeler, uh, the medical director of our search rescue team is an ER doctor and he's also a short haul and skier, and so if you can have him, that's the guy you you want. Once the whole the whole crew was at the ship. We loaded up and we just, you know, we flew right to the coordinates. I was in the back of the helicopter and we'd we the door off um, in preparation for a short haul and this is a big mountain. This is a several thousand foot mountain and, and they were just kind of these little ants on the side of the hill um, and, and standing around this huge tree, probably the biggest tree in the, the canyon is the tree that, that Connor hit. You know, they, they waved at us. We kind of waved, um, all right, we're coming in there essentially. Um, and, and we also sco- scoped out the scene, like, there was more avalanche hazard here. You know, we were—if we were going to go in there and rescuers, we were—we were going into avalanche terrain. It was kind of that simple. And, and and as rescuers, we we felt comfortable with it. But it was on a day that you know the danger was considerable. It was a it was a, it was a day to be paying attention. And you know, when we have a, a rescue out of bounds of the village, our our first call or our partners are the ski patrol because they're at the top of the tram. They're in theory going to be able to get there quicker than us mean, um, in this particular scenario, they're like, we, we can't go out. We don't feel comfortable. The avalanche danger is too high. It's too far away. We can't put ski patrollers in this location without, without them seeing, being subject to five canyons worth of avalanches as they go, get out there. Myself, AJ, and uh, Chris Lee, who was the spotter in the helicopter, and that's basically a guy just with his head out, that hanging out of the helicopter, watching the guys on the rope. Um, the three of us with our pilot uh, configured the ship. So we... Put the rope on it, put it uh, hooked it underneath the ship, and and uh, basically gotten our our full harnesses. The ship picked up, we hooked onto the rope, and and basically Nicole went and um, swung us up there. It was you know it's a three or four minute ride underneath a helicopter. So you're flying sixty miles an hour, um, just hanging out in the wind, and it's a pretty surreal feeling getting to just fly in there. And the twelve months before this, I had short hauled into seven or eight avalanche fatalities. So that's what I, you know we were thinking that. That, that's where we were thinking. We knew that it was a, a serious scenario. But, but you also get this level of exciting calmness where you, you just get tuned in and, and you're, you're in the moment. Like no, You're not thinking about anything else. You're thinking about what's right in front of you, which is the sa- same feeling that I'm sure Connor had right before he jumped into the couloir. It's that, that level of focus. Nicole sets us down softly 30 or 40 feet below these guys, um, which is kind of the, the biggest opening she could find. Um, And we unhook and uh, she basically goes and flies out and and lets us, you know, work on the rescue. And luckily there was three or four guys there besides Connor that we put to work, say, hey, you pack, you carry this up the hill, you get your shovel out, make a soft spot or make a flat spot. And and we started to organize the scene. AJ being the the doctor, his job was you focus on Connor, I'll focus on the scene. I'll work on the logistics and, and get the scene set up. And I remember when I got up to Connor, he was kind of propped against a tree he was as white as the snow. I've, I've been on a lot of rescues. I've seen a lot of people in shock. I've seen a lot of, you know, beat up people. I've never seen anybody that was as blaringly white. The second I saw him, I was like, this is this is serious. This guy is, he's hurt. We start getting ready to take him out. And um, the way we took him out was the same way we came in. Is basically we, we, we short hauled him. We hooked him on the end of a rope underneath the helicopter. And, and uh, AJ, myself, and Connor all flew out at, at once. Um, And so we basically put him on a... It's called the suck bag but it's basically a um a backboard of sorts and we put it in this it's called a bowman bag it's a big bag that um you know he was laying down in that we hooked to the rope underneath the helicopter you know i think this was january 14th 12th 12th january 12th and the call came at like 2 30 in the afternoon hmm. it gets dark at 4 30 or you know five like and we can't fly a helicopter unless it's light so we were up against we were up against daylight we got out of there you know more or less just in enough time to, to do it in, in, in light. In fact, when Nicole, our pilot, um, dropped us off on Fish Creek Road, we unhooked, and she's like, I'm heading back to the hangar. I can't stop and pick you guys up. Like, I got to get to the hangar before it gets dark. You know, fine. Call a ride. Um, and look, there was other search and rescue members there that gave us a ride home. But we were that close. We were, you know, a half hour or so from not being able to, to fly him out. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard the whole story until just now. You know, the whole, the whole sequence of events. Um, but it's eerie how how much it resonates with me. I'm 34 right now, so I'm like 10 years older than these guys. But 10 years ago, I was in their shoes. And uh, I personally was caught in a significant avalanche, also in Jensen Canyon. happening on the other side of the canyon, but it was within, you know, look across the canyon from where Connor was, and I was in a serious avalanche, you know, eight years before. I think it was a group of six guys on a day we shouldn't have been out there. You know, as these guys talk about the invis- invincibility, they felt and I, I remember kind of the line from that day was we were skinning up this mountain and I was with three or four guys out from Alaska and they're like god we can't keep up with you Wyoming boys and I just remember telling myself like yeah we are strong like I got this and uh, you know I, I, I felt invincible I felt like I could climb and ski any mountain and it was that simple you know I got into a, a serious avalanche that took me down a couple thousand feet and I bashed off a bunch of trees luckily my friends didn't have to call search and rescue um, I was not on the team at that point but we went through the same the same process of not wanting to accept defeat that the mountain conquered us. And so uh, the whole scenario, you know, it just resonated with me. And, you know, it's easy to say, oh, those guys shouldn't have been out there. And they were in, you know, extreme terrain and an extremely high avalanche, you know, danger scenario. But I've been there. I've done that. You know, I've had a similar thing happen to me. So I'm very empathetic. That's a learning process. And, and Connor and I talked before this that if we could share with folks that are listening to this podcast is it's not a good learning process. You know, (laughs) there is a way to, to not have to to pay that high tuition to learn those lessons. And and that's hopefully something that that the listeners to this hear is to know what Connor knows, to know what I know, to know what Jim knows, you know, doesn't require you to to lose a friend or to have a life changing injury. Be be cognizant of, of what you're getting into.
1: And I can remember the helicopter flying over the top and then flying away. And that was a moment that I was highly concerned because I had heard, I've heard many rescue stories where they don't feel comfortable coming into an area. They don't think they have enough time like we talked about. And I remember watching that helicopter fly away and once again, finding myself saying, I'm probably going to die. You know, even though I'm with my best friends, I just remember wanting to be warm and wanting to be home. And then when Cody and AJ were dropped off below us, I remember, you know, 20 to 30 feet seems like a lot to me at that time. And I remember saying, those guys are going to take forever to get up here. You know, it's snow snows so deep, it's going to take them forever. And boom, they're, they're right there over the top of me. And I remember just how coordinated they were when they got there. There wasn't hardly any words said before they were, shooting things up my nose, putting pills in my mouth, just going to work. Mm. AJ and Cody were just the most calculated people I've ever seen
0: do any job
1: in my entire life.
0: Yeah, yeah, focused. Like Cody said, they they came in and they were they were focused and and Cody said it was the the process from from landing and arriving to departure was quick. It was efficient.
1: They had pulled my buff all the way up to the Lower part of my cheekbones and pulled my hat down and put sunglasses on me and They said it's gonna be really windy and I was very confused because I didn't understand why it would be so windy and Then within about 30 seconds. I was going 60 to 80 miles an hour underneath the helicopter and luckily I had Cody and AJ both surrounded me So I felt like I was very safe and I felt like I was for the first time. I felt like I was gonna be okay and I was going to make it home. And then I remember being dropped down onto the pavement, extremely soft, and they got me loaded into the ambulance. My two paramedics asked if they could cut my clothing off, and I said, absolutely, as fast as you can. And I was still extremely hypothermic at the time. And they took out a warm blanket and put it on me and that was one of the best feelings I've had was being in that ambulance, going over the bumps, hurting the entire way, but I was warm. And then I got to St. John's Hospital and I was in the emergency room and they instantly got me in for CAT scans, x-rays, shattered my right pelvis and broken 11 ribs with some internal damage as well. AJ Wheeler came back into the ER to take care of me. After already saving my life once, he looked at me and the only words he had to say to me was, you're going to talk about this with your friends, right? And I was shaking my head, absolutely. Then he said, are you going to call your parents or am I going to call your parents? And I obviously had to call my parents. They had just landed in Key West, Florida for vacation, and essentially I called my father thinking that that would be the easier route of communication being that my mom is a nurse practitioner my mother picked up the phone she was in the car with my father in their rental car the first words that i said to her was mom i need you to take a breath i've been caught in an avalanche i'm going to live and i will be okay and her words were scott pull over the car And she started writing everything down that I said, that our doctors said. So that ruined their vacation instantly. (laughs) And they decided there wasn't going to be a vacation. My mom was flying home. My father was flying to Jackson to take care of me. After that, I spent a week in the ICU, a week in the PCU, and then another week in St. John's Hospital's kind of halfway medical center. And then I flew home to New Hampshire for eight months to recover. I would say that one of the most difficult parts of the recovery is being on the East Coast. No one understands what an avalanche is. They think it's cool. They think it's awesome. It's just so glorified by all these different film companies. And it's so cool to be out running avalanches and be being caught in avalanches but it's not, as we know. That was probably one of the hardest things to talk to people about is their just total misunderstanding of what I've been through and what I'm dealing with. In a way, it was kind of nice because I didn't have as much shame about where I was and what I had gotten into, whereas in Jackson, that would be a different story. I had a few... Small children at a ski race that I was volunteering at say, "Are you the avalanche man?" And I said, "Could I talk to your parents?" (laughs) Because I wanted to help and educate a little bit about the seriousness of the situation.
3: You know, being associated with avalanches and and being in them, he had physical injuries. You know, serious life-threatening physical injuries, but you know, it's traumatic. The, The amount of scaredness that he had during that 15 seconds that he was fighting for his life, I think is unequivocal, sheer terror. You know what's happening. You're not blacked out. You know that you're creaming down a mountain at terminal velocity, that the outcome is, is bad. I, you know, I think the trauma that people you know, mentally have from a, a, an incident like that is real.
1: And I still deal with those consequences daily. I have a lot of flashbacks, a lot of serious questioning of why I'm here and why I was able to live through this event. There's not a minute that goes by that I think that I shouldn't have died that day. I absolutely should have died that day. And if I didn't die that day, I was on the trajectory to die another day doing something else in the mountains. It's something that I'm learning to work with, but it's also an absolute blessing to have that serious of an incident happen to me and me to be able to still be here with a fully functioning body and mind and be able to help other people understand the seriousness of the situation that it's not just a playground that you can go do whatever you please just because you're a good skier moving to Jackson at 20 years old I was thrown headfirst into the culture of extreme skiing coming out of the mountains after huge success and you know going to the cowboy bar and seeing all of your friends and acquaintances and having them root you on because you are so awesome and you're skiing the biggest lines of anybody else that doesn't matter at all the thing that really matters is making smart decisions even if it means just taking everything slow because if you jump right into it the mountains will take you just the culture in this town is vicious in the fact that you almost earn points to take risk like i said it doesn't matter because if you die you're gone and nobody cares I think I can help a little bit at least by just educating not scaring that's not the key but just educating people on the decisions that I've made in the past and how blind I was to the consequences
0: that I was putting myself up against I moved to Jackson and I was 23 years old and you know I had graduated college and my situation is is so similar to so many young people in Jackson in that I come out here and, and there's been so much structure in my life. And then all of a sudden you get here, you discover this game in Jackson Hole and and it is a game where you, you can earn points. You know, like the perfect example is we were on Gothic that day skiing it because it's part of this, this trifecta that Chip was talking about, the, the Holy Trinity, which is no, you know, central, breakneck, gothic. And what are those things? It's just, it's three separate faces on the Tetons that sometime, you know, 10 years ago, some dude skied, he gave it importance, but it is, you know, it is just three lines that happen to be on totally different aspects and combining them is so dangerous. And yet here it is, is this thing to be accomplished and to come into Jackson searching for purpose and searching for validation and have these challenges set before you, this bucket list and something to strive towards and prove yourself is so intoxicating. When I got here and realized that I could prove myself, work towards something, Chip and I would you know go out and ski these lines and then we'd go out and we'd get pats on the back. Um, it feels good. And we were aware that we were playing into this game and we didn't care because we were good at it. And now... After this incident and others, I have realized that the winning this game is not worth my life or my friends' lives, <laughs> and there are other ways to feel good about yourself.
3: Skiing or ski mountaineering, it's a lot more enjoyable when you don't understand the consequences. Um, you know, I think lots of folks that are new to it, it's just... it's it's unbridled fun. You're out there just, you know, enjoying yourself and, and skiing powder on a big mountain is, is euphoric and, you know, it's that simple. Once you see it go wrong, once you personally get in an avalanche, once you see people die doing it, it becomes less less fun and, and you know, personally, uh, you know, I, I see danger, I see risk, I see, I'm scared constantly um, when I'm out there and, you know, it takes some of the, the joy out of it. Uh, not that I can't go powder skin and enjoy myself, I certainly do, but you're constantly looking around the corner or looking over your shoulder or looking up and, and and thinking about all the things that could go wrong and you know, I think it's some some form of traumatic stress.
1: I have a pretty tremendous amount of guilt by putting them into the situation that they were because Cody has a life, AJ has a life, and there's no need for them to be put where I was because of my mistakes and my poor decisions. And I'd taken a lot of risk before this, but that never once crossed my mind, is that if I get caught in an avalanche and I get injured enough to where they need to come get me, I am putting their lives in jeopardy. And there was a serious chance of hang fire and not only Cody and AJ, but the rest of my ski partners being possibly killed that day as well. I just think it's a really important thing to understand who – you're affecting with your decisions in the mountains. I've been here for four seasons now and I moved here in October four years ago and I started renting skis from Hoback Sports. I've been there since. That has been my community. That has been my family. They've been there for me no matter what is going on in my life. They're always my solid. I'd say one of the best things that happens at Hoback Sports with my story is parents will come in with their kids, who are 12 to 16, ski racers at Snow King. They'll say, do you mind talking to my son? Do you mind talking to my son or daughter about your story and what you've been through? Obviously,
0: every chance I can do that, I jump right on board. You know, you never can go back in time and give yourself advice, but I'm not special. There's a lot of me coming into town every year, so I guess I can tell them. To the 20-year-old males in Jackson Hole. You don't realize you are intoxicated. Your inhibitions have been lowered by your desires and, and you can't see it now. But life is extremely fun without risks that can kill you. We realized we weren't invincible, but we were blinded by our desires. And we thought because we acknowledged the risk that we were superior, but that still doesn't protect you.
3: As a rescuer, you know this one, I think has a special, special uh, spot in my heart. You know, very few times do we, you know, we get to go out and do a rescue where, where, saving a life is is so clear. You know, I'm I'm really proud to be part of a team that could do that. I'm really really happy to, to see you. I think it's it's brought some serious meaning to my, my rescue career, and, and, and this, this is why this is why we do it. Thank you, Cody. Thank you.
2: This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.